0: Transferring money from one country to another is expensive, and the banks that facilitate money transfer have tricked us into believing that it should be expensive. On today's show, Harsh Sinha explains the peer-to-peer system of transferring money with TransferWise, where he works as VP of Engineering. Harsh also discusses the larger picture of fintech companies. The emergence of so many companies at the intersection of finance and technology is no accident. The 2008 financial crisis created a loss of trust in the existing financial system. Simultaneously, smartphones and cheap cloud computing has created a new environment with new opportunities for companies like TransferWise to position themselves as a new option to consumer banking. And speaking of finance, if you're interested in showing some appreciation of Software Engineering Daily and having your company sponsor it, I am looking for sponsors for Q3, so maybe you can forward an episode or two to your marketing department and tell them how good of an opportunity this is. Uh, And if you enjoy the episode, please share it on Facebook or Twitter. Attention to the show grows by word of mouth. And if you have questions about the show or you just want to send me an email and say hi and tell me what you think of the show, what you like, what you hate, please send me an email. Some of the best uh, changes to the show have come from listener feedback, particularly the negative, critical feedback. If you listen to the show but you have some like strong negative feedback, I would love to hear it. Harsh Sinha is a VP of Engineering at TransferWise. Harsh, welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Thanks for having me, Jeff.
0: In this episode, I want to discuss the technology behind TransferWise. But first, we should start out with what TransferWise actually is. Can you describe the TransferWise product?
1: Yeah. So TransferWise is an international money transfer product. So what we basically do is allow customers who are trying to send money across borders. So let's take an example of uh, you are sitting in the United States and you have USD and you are going to travel to, say, Paris for the summer. And you uh, have a friend who is on the other side who you could um, get uh, some funds to or you want to pay your friends for a trip that you guys are taking together and one of your friends lives in uh, France. So how do you send money from USD to Euros, which would be in France? Um, Usually, people would go to a bank and uh, tell the bank that they want to send these funds, um, you know, $1,000 into euros. And that's where the trouble starts, where you get a lot of fees and the exchange rate that you get is very non-transparent. You don't know actually what the real exchange rate is. So TransferWise basically makes that whole exchange much more seamless, at a faster speed, cheaper price, convenient. And, uh, you know, we're looking at expanding more and more, so covering more and more currencies so, basically, providing you the cheapest, fastest way to transfer money abroad.
0: Historically, why have financial transfers been so expensive? I mean, if I just want to transfer euros to rupees, shouldn't I just be able to get the normal exchange rate and have that happen naturally? Why, are, why is it so expensive to do that?
1: Yeah, it's a very good question. So, I mean, there's multiple things to this. Um, if you think about... Um, back in the day, um, how money transfer would work. I mean, one of the biggest examples or the big examples would be Western Union, right? So it was a money transfer company. But when it started off, basically what they would do is um, they had a telegraph system that they would use to basically, and had um, different locations where they would have money. And you would go into a Western Union location, like you would do today even, and basically um, give money on one side, And then on the other side, they would communicate to Telegraph and send you, uh, send information on the other side to say, Jeff wants to send money to Harsh. Harsh is sitting in Europe. Jeff is sitting in the US. Jeff has just paid me thousand USD. And after the fees and after all the uh, exchange rate multiplication that they would do, they would say, please pay out Harsh Sinha, you know, um, 950 euros, for example. And then I would show up on the other side and take the money after showing some ID. So the whole risk of this system working was based on, one, it was innovation at that time. So they were a network that was providing the service so they could charge for it and charge more for it. Uh, People didn't have a lot of options to do um, move money. So they would use this. And, you know, when you have a monopoly in a way, then people would actually could charge more. Uh, They would also take some risk on handling cash. So they would be taking in cash, paying it out on the other side, um, carrying cash and taking the capital in different countries and holding it in these locations, there were risks involved with it. So that's how it started. Over time, of course, banks have uh, you know evolved. Uh, banks are connected more. Banks um, in uh, the 1900s and over time basically started getting connected to each other. And one of the biggest networks that was built that banks use is called the Swift network. And Swift kind of does a similar thing, but think about it through the network and protocol uh, that's proprietary to an extent that they use to connect to different banks. But the bank still decided to keep charging more fees because you know, it is something that can be easily charged for the service that you don't have a lot of options to use other places.
0: Right, so it sounds like this type of thing, and this is kind of a, a theme that seems to be coming up on Software Engineering Daily on a regular basis, which where like... You have this pain that that users or customers accumulate, and it's this pain that it becomes such a part of your everyday life that you kind of forget that it exists. So, one, you know, one episode we did recently was about um, remote desktop login. And if you think about, it, like, the remote desktop login technology that we're using, it's, like, pretty slow Pretty annoying, but we're so used to it having these problems that we just kind of make do with what it is. And and that has kind of been the way that money transfer has evolved. And like I think about it kind of from a first principle sort of thing. And it's like currency exchange markets are extremely liquid, they're extremely efficient. It's really hard. Like if you're a currency trader, it's pretty dang hard to make money. And so so like you know the 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 fees that these banks are charging on top of these uh, you know money transfer from one currency to another—they're kind of audacious. Wh- why why has it taken a really long time for somebody to innovate around this? I mean, we've had the intersection of banking and technology for a while. Has something changed recently? Where uh, I mean, you know, you start to hear about all these fintech companies, but has there been some sort of fundamental change? uh, in, in the market or what exactly is going on?
1: Yeah. Um, very good question. There's a lot in there actually. So, um, let's take the currencies market, the thing that you talked about, right? So actually, if you look at it historically, the currencies market, you made a comment about how making money as an FX trader is pretty hard. It's, well, it's true. The number of FX traders in the world are very, like, there's a handful of them, right? Um, and they're in the market, and they understand how the market works to an extent. Um, but um, if you think about the average consumer, for them, the currency market is actually pretty big black box. So let's compare the currency market to, say, the equities market, right? If you wanted to go buy a stock of, say, Google today, you would go Google it, and you would see what their current price is on the stock exchange. Um, Right now, you can go and Google the conversion or exchange rate for one GBP to euro, and you will get one number. And when you go and possibly call your bank and ask them to give you a rate, you will get a different number. You could also call your bank again and get another person on the phone and tell them that you're going to move $60 million and get a different number. That's not how the equities market works whether you're going to put 60 million or whether you're going to put you know 200 dollars you'd still buy google stock at the same price so there actually is a lot of information asymmetry in this market and that's mostly been driven by the big banks so the big banks actually didn't um, saw this coming early on that um, they were making quite a bit of money through the having this information asymmetry and uh, were able to offer different exchange rates depending on the client that's calling them right? And uh, before the internet happened also, a lot of this trading would happen on the phone. So you would call an exchange broker, they would give you a rate, and then you could keep calling people and get better rates or different rates, and then you'd pick one. So there's a lot of ways that you could actually change the exchange rate, and the buy and sell as the banks would um, give uh, rates on to the customers would keep changing. So this information asymmetry actually is one of the biggest reasons why banks realize that they can make a boatload of money, By charging different uh, commissions. And uh, that's the reason why it has not been disrupted because instead of, uh, there's no central exchange per se. Like, where do you go to trade currencies? You can connect with Goldman, you can connect with um, Barclays, you can connect with RBS, you can connect with Citi, but you have to go to these big banks to trade with them. And you kind of, they have the power, right? Now, um, the second part of your question was. What is changing? So, you talked about fintech. Look, what is happening? Why are, do we suddenly have like fintech companies coming along? Um, so, there's a few things. Um, one of the things that happened was the 2008 global financial crisis, right? So that kind of shed a lot of light on um, the banks and how they were losing a trust, like banks going down um, across the U.S., Europe. People started seeing the banks in a way. In a bad light to see, like, you know, how much money they were making and how much money the CEOs were making, while people were not making, uh, like, you know, one percent of what the other guys were making in the banks. So there's a loss of trust, which has opened up the consumers' mind to think about banking in a little different way and not always think about them as, you know, providing a service at a fair price. So there's a consumer appetite to possibly change their banking providers and look at different options. The other bit is even the regulators, especially in some markets like Europe, where you're seeing quite a bit of disruption in financial markets and fintech, um, you know, the regulators are trying to make it a more fair playing game. So the regulators are realizing that the banks have gotten pretty powerful and they want to see some innovation in the banking sector to make it an even playing ground for some of the consumers that we have. Um, And... Uh, Basically, if you don't do that, then the banks can basically keep milking with fees and all the other um, added value, added services that they claim to provide and charge you more and more as a consumer and you don't have anybody to go to. So um, this is kind of like the regulator is basically pushing the rule changes and innovating and providing smaller um, companies the ability to operate in the space is allowing a lot of innovation.
0: And in addition to the trends that you mentioned, the macro trends, there are also these trends of that just make starting a company easier. I mean, first, like, there's obviously everybody's got a mobile device now. That's a fundamental change. There's cloud just makes starting a business and scaling a business easier. That makes it a lot easier to start up a fintech company. It's like start up a fintech company is already so much uh, cost to onboarding and you have to have, have, have a lot of uh, money it takes a lot of money to start a fintech company yep. um, and then also there's just like open source software has been compounding interest over the past 10 or 20 years or however long open source has been really going and my impression is that banks just are unable to adopt open source as aggressively as smaller companies so there are all these trends that create this ecosystem that makes fintech appealing So let's talk about TransferWise. So what does TransferWise do differently? Because there is obviously a fundamental difference to how TransferWise Transferwise facilitates money transfer.
1: Yeah. So um, the biggest thing is that we operate on a peer-to-peer model or we try to make our routes as much peer-to-peer as we can. Right. So the idea started off with uh, our founders, um, one person, both Estonian founders, uh, one living um, in London, but getting paid in euros, because he used to work for Skype. He was uh, an early employee, Skype's, Skype's employee number one. And, uh, but he lived in London, and he needed to move his money from euros to pounds every month. And then the other founder, Christo, who lived also in London, but had a mortgage to pay in Estonia in euros. And he got paid in GBP, in pounds. So they would both go to the bank every month, and they would both kind of come back feeling marginalized or gypped because they would be like, I'm not sure I got the best exchange rate because that's not what was, you know, showing online, showing up online. And also, I got charged all these fees. So over time, as they, like their friends, they started talking, and then they realized one day that, hey, instead of going to the bank, why don't we just pick the... Mid rate between the buy and sell, which is the mid market rate, and then just I will pay, do the transfer into your local bank account in Europe, and you do the transfer into my um, pounds bank account in London, and we're done. That's how the company started, right? And this model basically perpetuates as we perpetuate as we started building the business. The idea is that we integrate into local banking systems and local bank accounts across the world, and then when we have routes that we run. So let's say we are running U.S. Somebody comes in and says, I want to transfer 1,000 USD to British pounds. We will try and find customers. Now, I'm putting this a little crudely, but though we'll try and find customers who are moving money the other way. And basically, money doesn't have to cross borders, but we basically use the local bank system to be able to um, do the transaction. And us sitting on the internet, seeing both sides of the transaction, we can settle within us. I'd
0: so... So so it is this it's it's actually this incredibly kind of simple revelation and it's very interesting that it just started as just these two guys that you know had a peer to peer transfer that aligned well and then it actually scales to yeah. to a bigger model. So transfer wise maintains accounts in all these different countries where money needs to be transferred between. Mm-hmm. And instead of money actually being sent between these countries, TransferWise just keeps track of the ledger of people who want to send money between the countries. And TransferWise can just transfer the money between an individual and the local bank accounts uh, where they need money transferred to and from. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So are there any countries in which this system does not work? Yeah. So, we have, um, so what we, we have
1: what we call bidirectional routes or full peer-to-peer. So that would be, you know, you can send money to United States and from United States, to British pounds in the UK and from. But then we have some one direction routes. So for example, right now, if you want to send money to India using TransferWise, you can do that. But we cannot send money from India. Using transferwise because we uh, there are different regulations for that. So taking money out of a country uh, can have very different regulations than sending money to a country. So this varies from country to country. So in that, in this way, we move, use the more traditional model where other banks or even other money transmitters would use, where we would actually fund that account and you would basically we would be the, we would be the market maker, as I would imagine, as I would uh, describe. So instead of finding you somebody moving money from India out into US we would fund that transfer.
0: So there's also the scenario where you have two markets where the flow of currency between the two markets is not equal. So there might be, you know, like maybe you're, you're talking about, you know, Brit- so British pounds flowing into euros, for example, Those, those, mm-hmm. that's going to be like kind of equal, like British pounds are going to flow into euros, euros are going to flow into British pounds, kind of equal. So transfer-wise is, you know, it's not difficult to, to make it work for that scenario. But there are, situations where there is less of an equilibrium like you can think of remittance type of markets where you know maybe uh, US dollars flowing into some, con- some f- flowing back into some country where remittance is, is being paid like some you know immigrant is sending money back to their native country and money is not coming back in the opposite direction at the same rate. So you can imagine the accounts uh, that that transferwise maintains, in these specific countries where there's a lot of remittance payment coming in, but not a lot of payment coming out, you can imagine there an imbalance being mm-hmm. created. So how do you yeah. deal with that imbalance type of uh, exchange situation?
1: Yeah. Um, so we, again, it's um, basically we become the market maker. So if there's an imbalance, um, let's take the example that you um, uh, gave. A, let's say, let's take actually Australia, right? So there's more money coming um, Um, possibly there could be more money going into Australia than coming out of Australia, right? Uh, From, say, British pounds. So all the money that is coming from Australia into England, we can match because we have um, almost 5% market share in the UK. So we have way more British pounds that we can match in our customer pool of money that has been provided to us, that we can match on the uh, incoming route. But on the outgoing, we will have to buy some Australian dollars. So TransferWise would again do a liquidity move, or basically go and buy, and become uh, the provider for the peer, the other side of the peer-to-peer system. So we would basically pay out ourselves. So we would match whatever we can with those customers who have already provided us Australian dollars, the rest we would fund. Um, And the beauty of the system is that, you know, it varies from being a traditional system to a more peer-to-peer model as more people come onto the platform. Right? So as more people join TransferWise in Australia and more people use us, we become more peer-to-peer. That means our costs go down more. That means our speed increases faster. So the more people who join this platform, the better the system gets for every additional user who joins.
0: So now that listeners have an idea for what TransferWise does, kind of the problems that you're dealing with, let's talk about the technology. TransferWise has been around since 2011. So it's five years old. Yeah. What did the technology stack look like when TransferWise first got started and first launched?
1: Yeah, um, so it, like any other startup, uh, you know, and especially in startups uh, in the last five to seven years, um, one of our founders, Christo, he wrote the initial code base um, and um, basically using the Lean methodology, you know, MVP'd everything, right? So the initial TransferWise... Um, set up or the technology was nothing but an Excel spreadsheet. Um, we put up a uh, form on the web and uh, we described the idea of how this, is, this works and we talked about the product. But in the back end, it was basically, you know, transfers coming into a bank account. We had bank account setup, but then basically saying from GBP to Euro, we can move money faster and cheaper than anybody else. We'll give you the mid-market rate and this is the product. And we got some press and uh, I think on the first, the first transfer was for £2,000, which if you, look, you have to pause and think about it. A no-name company started up on the internet is talking about being a financial company, taking your money, and will move it to euros, and is promising you a mid-market rate. And it just came out today, and somebody got on, filled out a form, gave the bank account information, gave their personal information, and said... I'm moving 2,000 pounds to you. Here it is. Please move it to euros. Unbelievable, right? And uh, the power of the internet, right? And how much people trust. Um, that's how it started. From then on, of course, that's like, you know, they started getting more and more <laughs> orders, uh, transfers created. And they said, all right, we actually have a put up much. Later. The MVP is working. We should put a system behind it and start building the code base. Um, and uh, the initial code base was built on Groovy on Grails, which for uh, some of the listeners... Um, might not be the most um, well-known language uh, and platform, but basically it's basically a framework, and Groovy is the language, something similar to Ruby on Rails, but it's it, JVM-based. It was kind
0: of fashionable in 2011, I think.
1: It was, it was to an extent, and especially um, in Europe where uh, there's a lot of like enterprise Java programmers, Groovy definitely has, a, you know, um, being a JVM-based language, has some similar... Um, similar syntax and similar principles, so it was easy to switch to and use, and easy to basically use the framework to get a website up. So that's how it started. Sorry, go ahead. So,
0: so did you have to integrate? I mean, as you started building out that backend, did you have to start to integrate with all these different international banks, or is there some unified API for dealing with the banking system?
1: Oh, I wish there was a unified API to deal with the banking system. Um, well, if there was, then maybe we wouldn't exist. Um, so, well, there's a unified API. It's called Swift, which all the banks have connected to, a lot of the banks. Uh, and Swift is very expensive and very complicated to use for most customers. So um, the idea is that we are connecting to the local banking system in each country. So they completely vary. With some integrations, we have... Some APIs, even till this date, some banks have APIs. With some folks, we do file-based integration, so FTP, SFTP, or FTP, FTPS. Uh, and then with some, we do very proprietary protocols that or APIs that they may have. Some we do ISO eighty-five-eight-three um, integrations. So it all depends on the bank and the local market and what's been prevalent there um, because the banks are using technologies that have been built in the 50s, 60s, 70s. So for them to get it to the newer API-based model has been harder.
0: So I I mean, I've done a couple interviews with people about like fintech stuff and there is always this story of like integrating with the banks. It tends to be like you're dealing with older technology a lot of times because these are older companies. Like I remember doing... A show about ripple and you know ripple is this cryptocurrency system and it's just funny seeing like the cryptocurrency system contrast with the systems that it has to integrate with that are doing ftp to manage the money transfer so what are some of the difficulties to that integration process do you have to like spend a lot of time communicating with the support engineers at these banks or i don't know tell me tell me about that process of integrating with banks
1: Yeah, I mean, it again varies. So um, definitely you spend time trying to read um, or understand how to integrate. Uh, It can range from email-based instructions to actual API docs that don't actually work because the API is different than what the docs specify um, to API docs or uh, instructions that are written in non-English language. So we've been doing some integrations in Latin America, and uh, you know the docs are written in a different language, so we have to kind of work through that. Um, and then basically even the support folks or the people who we are integrating with, it is quite often that when the deal was struck or like in the, the, the business deal was signed to say, we're going to work with you as our banking partner, those people in the room did speak fluent English and understood what we we're going to build and like maybe sold the tech to be more than it is made out to be. And then when you start integrating, you start realizing that actually it is not as easy as you think. And then the person who's working with you on the other side might not also speak the same language. So uh, integrations can be more complicated because of that. Um, but yeah, it varies. It really varies uh, from uh, place to place, banking system to banking system. But in general, um, yeah, uh, the problems can be mostly language, and outdated or non-existent documentation, uh, and then protocol formats, which can be a little esoteric um, or have exceptions that you would not expect them to have.
0: Back in the first dot-com wave of payments companies, PayPal ended up being successful largely because it was the company that had the best established anti-fraud technology. Is is fraud a big problem for TransferWise? Is that uh is that something you have to deal with a lot of times?
1: Yeah, fraud, of course, for any financial company, fraud is obviously on the top radar, right? So um we also have a pretty sophisticated fraud engine which we keep iterating and developing. Um the thing about PayPal versus I spent time at PayPal and uh before I joined TransferWise, and you're right, like PayPal's fraud engine is very impressive and the The whole power of that engine is based on the amount of transactions that they have seen over the last 15, 17 years, and also the number of transactions they see right now. So fraud and doing fraud is basically nothing but catching patterns, right? So Mm -hmm. when we launched in the US, um, we started working with the ACH system. Um, So the ACH banking system uh, has some very interesting rules around how long you have before, after a transaction has been done and money has been taken out of your bank account, how long you have before you can actually claim what we call a chargeback. So in most banking systems in the world, it could be a few days. In um, ACH, you can be up to 60 days, actually, if you could call your bank. Your bank has to legally reverse a transaction, right? I mean, there's some paperwork around it and you have to explain what happened or you lost your, like, somebody hacked to your account. It depends on bank to bank, but in general, that could happen. So, um, you know, There could be customers who would not see if there's been fraud through the account happening for a long time, and we could still be hit. So, you can't deem a transaction to be done um, within 60 days, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. Um, So, our fraud engine takes all this into account. So, when we look at patterns that are coming through as a transaction that's flowing through our system, we look at a lot of things around, of course, where you're logging in from, IP based stuff, but we also look at a lot of different patterns and it's kind of like, you know, playing cat and mouse, right? So fraudsters figure out new ways to do fraud and then you figure out a pattern and then you learn from it and then you block it and that's how it works. And we also um, uh, implement machine learning algorithms and compare human versus machine learning um, accuracy and then use the algorithms in different ways.
0: What's the workflow for a machine learning expert or a data science team that is working on anti-fraud measures and how how does that type of how much does that type of team have to interact with with other teams because I mean we, we did some shows about data science a while ago and mm-hmm. it was very interesting because a lot of times there would be the situation where data scientists and machine learning people have to spend some time making a model and then they make this model and then you throw this model over the wall and the other developers have to integrate that model into the actual, Workflow of how stuff production stuff gets processed and and that handoff can can sometimes be uh, more difficult than it than it would seem like from the outside.
1: Yeah, um, so it depends on the kind of product you're building, right? So if you're using machine learning to do, say, a recommendation engine or preferences, I think that's kind of a different model than what you would see in financials. Um, so, for I, I would imagine, I mean, this is actually I know working in two financial companies, that's kind of how most financial operations work, is the fraud team has the luxury of actually collecting a lot of data from a lot of different teams, right? So let's take an example that um, um, you're the team that maintains the website, and you're giving some login information, IP information, and collecting certain browser information um, on the customer. And basically, the fraud team will provide you some kind of SDK or an API to provide this data dump and there's a stream of data coming into their system, which they can collect. And they can collect this from all the different teams and all the different experiences that we're building, which touch the customer. And uh, same thing for mobile. And then basically, then you bring it in, and then you build your models, and you crunch the data. And then based on that, you hone your models. So actually, the workflow, I believe, is not very... I mean, it's collaborative, of course, because you have to get the other teams to get you this data, and you have to write the APIs or the SDKs to make sure that they have an easy way to send you this data but um, it's a lot of like stream the data to me when i release a lot of reads coming in and then basically based on that i'm uh, sorry writes coming in and based on that building a model and then after that it's basically using human judgment and machine learning and tuning the algorithms so we would always always we work in a place where um, you know we have transaction sizes which are, can be pretty big so i wouldn't want to be in a place where we're moving millions and millions of dollars and we have no humans looking at the transaction, um, you know, maybe one day, but not right now. So we would have machine learning and humans, but machine learning augments humans. So that way, what we do is like the uh, analysts are looking at more complex stuff and machine learning is catching the simpler stuff easily. And over time, it's learning, but the input that the humans are giving. And then you have a training set. I mean, just like any other machine learning algorithms that you must have talked through, a training set and then a test, and then you see how that prediction works.
0: So uh, I mentioned that Ripple episode a little bit earlier, and I think Ripple is this kind of interesting system. It's it's not it's not peer to peer, but it is based on the same trust network th- th- kind of thing that we're discussing here. That you kind of mentioned was so important to PayPal's anti fraud mechanisms. I think of this this trust network is also crucial to. I think, how Facebook is going to be thinking of payments and loan systems in the future when they become a bank or whatever the heck they're becoming. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think of these more futuristic systems like Ripple and Ethereum, maybe Bitcoin? I don't know, this this cryptocurrency space. And when is this space going to begin to overlap more with the more... Um, you know, everyday type of currency exchange system that TransferWise plays in.
1: Yeah, so um, so I think there's some very interesting work going on in crypto, um, more around the technology, especially the. the I mean, I can. Uh, I've only looked at Ripple so much, but like, you know, if you look at uh, Bitcoin and the underlying blockchain uh, implementation, like basically having the distributed ledger system where you. Tr- don't have one central place where like, you know, transactions are logged so you can actually trust the network and the network, every node in the network helps you determine that this transaction is unique. It is actually non-fraudulent and you know, uh, once it's done, it's done. Um, I think it's very, very... Um, it's basically something that you could only do on the internet. So it's great because it, this needed the internet to be evolved to a certain stage like it is now to be able to have this. Um, but also it reduces... Um, the centralized banking infrastructure requirements, right? So you're, again, replacing stuff like Swift Network with, you know, the uh, Bitcoin network or the, the blockchain or Ripple. And um, I think there is definitely use cases where if I were to think about, say, certain countries where um, adoption of payment currencies will happen or payment new protocols would happen because the economy or the... Political regime isn't that stable, then it's better for you to actually not work or operate in your local currency, but actually work in a store your money or assets in a currency which is more global. Uh, and you cannot buy USD, then this could be something that you could use. And people are doing that. Some people in China are actually still buying uh, bitcoins and storing their wealth there. Now, Of course, this network also has like Bitcoin as shown. There's a lot of of manipulation, a lot of like buying and selling. And, uh, you know, that's not foolproof from a perspective of hype and how the Bitcoin valuation changes. Um, I do think that there is definitely, you know, um, some value here. I think that uh, it remains to be seen how it gains mainstream adoption. I think there are banks that are looking at blockchain for their own ledger systems as they're starting to think about upgrading their technology. So this could be an interesting uh, segment that blockchain could pick up and get implemented in. But then the banks still have no incentives to get off there, uh, give up their, uh, you know, their um, advantage. So they would still charge the big fees. Um, so, yeah, it still remains to be seen. I think from a technology perspective, it is very, very interesting. Um, do I see international money transfers completely being solved by this? Um, I don't know. I think until we have vested interest to have a um, currency for every country, which is not just driven by people's wish, but also driven by a lot of political, um, um, you know, political incentives, and also wanting to keep markets separate, um, currencies will exist till the day borders exist. Right. So the immigrations exist, currencies will exist to a large extent. So it remains to be seen how we can take the Internet age can take um, the step and get up to using a global currency.
0: Well, and one thing that I think is interesting that the, all this cryptocurrency stuff and, and fintech as well has sparked is this discussion of what money actually is. And when you talk to people about money and you ask them, so like, what is this? What actually is this? Like you can get to this very like emotional discussion because it's almost like asking somebody like what what is God? You know, it's it, what is, what is money? Like is it is it debt? Is it uh, is it your belief in in the value of the country that the money is coming from? Or like if I have money in my Starbucks account, what is is that a, is that a statement about how valuable? St- like Starbucks is, and how the value of coffee is going to change in the future. So, I mean, maybe this is getting uh, a little too fanciful, but what is your impression? I mean, given that you've spent time at PayPal and now you're spending time at TransferWise, you must think a lot about what money actually is at its core. So, have you come to any revelations about what money actually means? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> very interesting question. Um, Too deep? Is this out of your pay grade?
1: (laughs) It's deep. I mean, you know, think about it from a perspective of, you know, it's storage of value, right? Um, It is storage of value, I would think, from an engineering perspective for, in simple terms, for a unit of work. Um, At the unit of work I do, gives me some, you know, I put in some value into doing that work that hopefully is moving something in the world to then uh, give me some uh, return for that effort, which then I can use to you know, live off stuff like paying my rent or paying uh, buying stuff to feed myself, right? So it's storage of value. And uh, what is money from a perspective? I, I would say what is currency and does currency need to be different and so different? I think the currency is a representation of the um, economic structure of the country that it represents more or less or the region it represents. Uh, and the belief that the people have that that economic um, uh, structure or that the economy economic situation in that country will remain to be the same or grow or diminish.
0: Okay. So, so obviously we've gotten pretty far from like the world of software engineering. So yep. know, as, as we begin to, I guess, wrap up or a little bit in the last 10, 15 minutes, we've got, I do want to discuss some of what the stack at TransferWise looks like today. So um, I read a post uh, from 2016 by a TransferWise engineer where he discussed that the company is rebuilding the product from scratch, or maybe the rebuild has been finished. Um, and I get the sense that there was like some technical debt that had accumulated. Can you give me a picture for how the product has been rewritten internally? Have you broken into microservices? Are you using like a container management system? Just give me an idea of what the back end looks like today and how that rewrite process has proceeded.
1: Yeah. Um I'll have to find the blog post in general, but I think you might be referring to a blog post around rebuilding software is inevitable. Um so um That's right. Yeah, okay, cool. So actually just to be clear, we are every company and every uh, like in a stack as it evolves, there will be some technical debt. Um less I would like not to call it technical debt, but actually you know, you're you smarter now than you were before because now you know more use cases and you know your business has evolved. Um, we're not doing a big bang rebuild or like we are re-architecting transfer-wise. Um, it's not that how, it's, that's not how we work. Um, so basically the idea is this. As I said before, uh, the first technology stack was Groovy and Grails. And um, so you're like, you know, uh, easy to iterate, easy to get. A website up and we were able to scale that uh, system quite a bit to do quite a bit of transactions and we still have a monolith in groovy, groovy and Grails, which is a big part of our system. Um, but as we have grown and as we're doing more and more transactions and also as our engineering team has grown, so we've gone from um, about 50 engineers since I joined last year to doubling the team um, now. So you're almost at 100 engineers. So as you have, as you can imagine, uh, as you have more and more people working in the same code base we step on each other's toes bills get longer uh, there's more code base that's code that's added and the increase in uh, delta increase in code base is much faster because we have more people committing um, so we've started to move and we've moved on quite a bit of work in the move towards microservices so we're splitting up core components of a monolith and breaking it into multiple microservices and uh, our journey is ongoing so we've done quite a bit of work last year um and then we have. Uh, this uh, this year going through this whole uh, transition. So we hope that uh, the monolith will uh, be very small by the end of this year. The the new microservices that we are writing is in Java 8 on Spring Boot. And then uh, obviously we're also adding new technologies for communication between the services. So we are using a messaging bus infrastructure and like also deployments changing. Previously, it was easier to deploy a monolith. Now with so many microservices, we are looking at containers, we're looking at Docker. Uh, we actually do use Docker in a few things internally um, for testing. And then uh, um, we're looking both we are hosted on-premise and also looking at Amazon. So that's kind of how we are, we are set up.
0: Hmm. So when you talk about onboarding with Docker, it sounds like you're just kind of assessing it, you're testing out some things. Uh, I, I assume you want to integrate it in you know, into more production, more uh, of your architecture and your workflow. How is that, what's your plan for that onboarding processor? Like, how are you, how are you trying to, like, are you thinking in terms of like, um, whenever you're, you're spinning off a microservice, you start to test that in Docker and, I don't know. Give me give me an idea for how you're onboarding with Docker. I mean,
1: yeah, that's that's the idea, right? So, like, um, can we spin up um, instances, especially for tests? So, can we spin up um, if I am writing some uh, code on my service and I need a environment to run my tests through or have a dependency? Can I spin up a Docker image, Docker container, with uh, the other dependencies that I need? Like that's one use case we can have. Um, also looking at production to see can we club services together or can we actually bring um, put stuff inside the container so it's easier to deploy. But basically, um, and it's not only Docker. We're looking, um, you know, maybe um, like looking at other stuff too. But the idea is the as you said, like you know, can you deploy stuff easily? Can you take stuff from test or dev through test to production in a similar manner or a similar environment? So all the tests performance. And uh, functional tests that you run are in the same environment. so it's easy to transition the code into production.:
0: And how has the how has the, sorry to interrupt you, but how is how the, uh, the, the transition from a monolith to microservices? How has that affected your, your team structure, your ops or your DevOps uh, structure?
1: Yeah. Um, so we actually believe in uh, you build it, you run it through and through. So, um, we definitely have um, an infrastructure team, a platform team, uh, which uh, for a long time, uh, you know, was basically since we had the monolith, would basically help us deploy the code. And, like, you know, so we'd have a release every morning. It would go out and all the code would be in um, the the build and things would go out and the infra team would deploy it. And then uh, the developers who had committed for that day or uh, you know whoever was in the release whoever's commits were picked up, they would actually be on um, the release channel to help support and leading logs and stuff. As we've gone more towards microservices, we've gone taken the more approach the bigger approach of uh, you know the ability to run it. So we've built tooling around being able to deploy code simultaneously to production depending on whatever you want to do. So you have your own instances, you deploy um, um, your microservice yourself, you maintain it, you look at the graphs, you look at uh, monitoring. And of course, the platform team is there to help if you need help. But in general, you run your software. The monolith still does get um, deployed by the um, central team for now. That's how it's set up. Mm. So whatever's so remaining what, of the sorry, whatever's remaining of the monolith that still gets deployed by the central team. Yeah,
0: got it. So just to close off, what are the projects that you are focused on uh, working on at Transferwise today?
1: So from a product perspective. Right now, uh, if you think about it, so I'll give you some numbers on this. Um, in two thousand and fifteen, end of two thousand fifteen, um, McKinsey had a report which said that uh, by two thousand eighteen, I believe, um, yeah, two thousand eighteen, the money transfer consumer money transfer business for banks and the revenue that they would be getting from it would be close to three hundred uh, uh, billion dollars. Right, that's how big the pie is. In the world for this right now uh, in the next three years for um, the revenue that people are making from consumer business. And this is basically how how high the fees are from um, what uh, the banks are charging customers. And we believe that we can definitely have a bigger impact in the world by just reaching every corner of the globe with our product. So we're right now in about 60 countries with 24 currencies supported. And uh, we have a lot of the globe more to cover. So our biggest thing is to expand into new countries and build newer routes and uh, also um, get to the corners of the planet where you know, there aren't very good solutions on money transfer. Even the banks, maybe not the best solutions out there because they're not connected to the global network like Swift and stuff. So expansion is definitely the biggest thing. and uh, We're also looking at some other interesting products. I can't talk about it per se right now, but in general, looking at what else our customers are looking for when they're looking to do international money transfer or like access their money across the planet so that's kind of
0: that's that's great yeah i think this all this fintech stuff is so awesome it's gonna be so impactful on how humanity operates just because you as we've seen when you reduce the cost of something that is fundamentally important like computing or energy or food it just it has ripple effects that uh, compound throughout the economy and when you take out this 300 billion dollar tax on transferring money that uh, is is harming it's creating friction between between individuals you know it's it, it's going to just improve commerce it's going to compound in ways that we won't expect and uh, transfer wise is obviously at the center of that type of transformation. So Harsh, I want to thank you for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation. Um, I know you, you've you come on in the evening uh, when it's somewhat inconvenient for you, but I really appreciate you uh, making time to come on the show. So so thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it's been great. And I uh, hope you, the audience likes uh, what we talked about today.